The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, 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 now it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a real virus called real lysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. I'm pleased to announce the return of sponsor company Noblis Health Corporation. Noblis trades on the Amex under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. SHGT is founded by Steve Chen, H's number one motivational speaker, generating over $60 million in gross revenues alone yearly. With further interest in filmmaking, advertising, and social media, SHGT is potentially positioning itself to be the number one U.S. publicly traded concern out of Taiwan and China. I'll also chat with comedian, author, and journalist Susan McIntosh. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brand, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much, Alice. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a company that focuses completely and solely on treating cancers. So we're an oncology company in industrial vernacular. We're using a very interesting new method of treating cancers, which is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to infect and kill tumors in humans. And we've treated a little over 1,100 patients to date, so that the program is getting quite mature. And part of that whole process has been to figure out which cancers are susceptible to this particular virus, administer the product most effectively, and how to integrate in what we've learned about how the agent works along the way. So that at the end of the day, you come up with a treatment that's based, like I said, on this live virus that will be focused on the cancers that it works best in. And I think we're actually getting a pretty good picture of all those factors, and I think we're getting targeted very closely on the cancers we think we can make a difference in. There are many types of cancers, Brad. How can one proprietary type of technology such as oncolytics realizing treatment address all of these different variant types of cancers? But the short answer is that no one agent can treat all of cancers. 
And the best one can hope for is that you can treat a reasonable percentage of each cancer. And I think in the case of real lysin, we're aiming to be able to do just that. There'll be certain types of cancers that we be able to treat more of and certain cancers that we'll be able to treat less of as a percentage basis. You know, for example, melanomas in the lab, all melanomas are exquisitely sensitive to real lysin. When you start treating humans and human patients, it's a little different than that. And it's mostly because the superficial lesions, the ones that are in your skin, aren't all that accessible to the virus. I mean, this is a, a live agent, it's a virus, and it's big. And for some reason, it just this virus doesn't penetrate the skin all that well. Now, that doesn't mean that the metastatic lesions, you know, liver lesions that you get from melanoma and things like that aren't treatable. But I think that's just an example about you have to, in some cases you're only going to get partial treatment successes. But as you treat each different type of cancer, you learn more, and this may help you to effectively begin to treat types of cancers that you haven't really treated before, correct? Absolutely. Much of which we learn from one cancer is transposable to treating another cancer and, and gives you an approach to treating a cancer. Again, I'll give an example. We discovered just recently, actually, that this particular virus will cross over from in circulation when we administer it into the brain, which is quite a novel uh, understanding. So it means we could treat certain types of brain cancers. We just assumed we wouldn't be able to treat primary brain cancers, but it turns out that the virus actually crosses into primary brain cancers quite nicely. But what we were looking for was metastatic disease, and so from another indication. So it really gives you an opportunity to take information from one disease and treat another disease directly. The market has been favorable to biotech concerns, and there's certainly been an interest in oncolytics biotech. We've seen it here with this program and our audience. Do you attribute that to both the pervasiveness of cancer physically in our society, as well as the various stages of your research and the amount of patients you've already treated? Well, there's a huge amount of interest in oncology, so the treatment of cancer today. And it didn't always used to be that way. I mean, if you go back five or ten years, there was a lot less interest in that. And I think it's really two things. First is that cancer is still one of the leading killers of people in our society, unfortunately. And, of course, we're trying to all change that. But secondly, there's been some successes, unexpected successes from the magnitude of effect on people in the industry that has really raised the profile of the entire industry. And people are saying, wait a minute, that industry is making a difference, not going to make a difference, is already making a difference in cancer outcomes, and we should pay attention to it. So there's that kind of co-joined cancer awareness and the awareness of the progress that we're making. I think the level of interest in our project, which is using an oncolytic virus for treatment, is also going up rather dramatically. And I think it's due to two factors. The first is that in our area, we're expecting the first product approval of a virus to treat cancer, both in the United States, and that's Amgen's uh, product called TVEC. The expectation is very high that both those groups will uh, approve that product, and that brings attention to the entire area of viral therapy. Secondly, specifically with respect to real license, people are actually beginning to see that we understand exactly how our agent works and how that is applied to specific cancers, and most recently, and we've talked about this, is multiple myeloma. We have very good molecular evidence down at the cellular level in the body that real license is making a difference, and we actually understand how it does make a difference. So I think those two things are really making a big difference. Now, with a company such as Amgen making news and perhaps affecting your business, do you see any cross-pollination with that company or any companies like it? Are you perhaps also positioning yourself as a takeout candidate? 
I would expect that at some point, and that point in time might be sooner or later, one who has the idea when that might happen, that Encloix Biotech would be a takeover candidate by another party. Historically in biotech, a small entity like Oncolytics would form a, what we call a corporate partnership with a bigger entity where you'd stay independent, but you'd work together on developing your product, and they would provide resources and support in that and gain part or most of the rights to the agent. What we've seen is a shift recently to what most other industries are like, where those companies are buying other companies rather than partnering with them. And so I would expect that somewhere uh, in the future, uh, Oncolytics would be a, a takeover target, assuming that our, you know, our agent continues to develop as it does. So it's definitely a goal of yours. People tend to forget is that we're in business for our shareholders. I mean, we're in business to provide to those people who have supported us financially you know, a return on their investment. And one of the best ways and biggest ways of giving people a return on their investment is to be acquired. You typically get acquired at a premium to what you see on the screen as a trading price. You know, that's in the best interest of shareholders generally. If you have a belief that the company will appreciate more than that as an independent entity, then you fight, you know, a takeover attempt. If you believe that that is a fair representation of a future value, then you go along with the takeover attempt. The nice thing about being taken over as a public company is that, I mean, you take it to your shareholders to vote on. They can vote to be bought or they can vote against being bought. And, and that's the ultimate in democracy is like we're asking you to tell us what you want us to do. You, know, you can vote either way and majority rules. That is a really powerful tool in public companies today to be able to do that. Do you see something like that happening during the next five years? I think there's a very reasonable probability that they'll be purchased by another entity in the next five years. Now, notwithstanding that, we've structured to be operate independently, permanently, as it were, so that if, you know, if that event does not happen, I would expect that five years from now, Oncolytics would be a profitable company and growing and adding other products to its portfolio and just developing a small to medium-sized uh, profitable pharmaceutical company is. You were recently in San Francisco for the Bioinvestor Forum. What are people asking you when you're one-on-one -on -one with these investors or potential investors? It's interesting that where they're from and geographically often determines what kind of questions they ask. U.S.-based shareholders today are asking a large number of questions about our multiple myeloma program. It's certainly the most topical program on our list at the moment in the United States. And I think that's because we just have the best quality of clinical data at all levels out of our current portfolio on that particular agent. It's an disease that needs extra attention to it. If you were talking to a similar group of people in Canada, and there were quite a few Canadian investors at that that meeting, uh, what they're asking me about is our colorectal study in Canada. We finished enrolling a randomized colorectal a phase two study earlier this year in Canada, and so everybody's eagerly awaiting the data on that. And I think part of the reason for that is that the resources, the funding for that particular program all came from Canadian sources. I mean, that was a financing done in Canada that was done to support that program. And so you really do see differences of focus based on where people are and what they've done with the company in the past. What's on deck for the company in the next 6 to 12 months? We currently have five randomized phase 2 studies ongoing, and four of which have completed enrollment, and the fifth, which is a breast cancer study, is just about to finish enrollment. We're expecting preliminary or later than preliminary data out of all five of those studies over the next calendar year. That's a lot of information in a very short period of time. In addition to that, we just recently announced our first clinical study in pancreatic cancer where we're using one of the new drugs and a new drug class called the checkpoint inhibitor in combination with Realysin. Really, our first clinical study where we're actively modifying the immune system in two different ways. Realysin modifies the immune system and the checkpoint inhibitor modifies the immune system. A lot of people are very interested in the results of that. 
Breast cancer patients are really a large segment of the afflicted population. So this is a very important study. Yes, I mean, breast cancer is certainly, uh, you know, one of the leading causes of death in women. The other is another reproductive cancer, which is ovarian cancer, both of which have very high death rates over the long term. And there's been a lot of progress made, but still, unfortunately, the final result is that. And so we're having a lot of attention on that particular study by women's groups in particular. But, you know, of course, the families of women are also very interested in that particular uh, study. And we're quite excited about the prospects of getting you know, clinical trial data on that particular cancer. Potentially, if you're successful, we can more or less do away with these chemo and radiation treatments that are so hard on the body. Well, I think that's the goal of our agent and, to be honest and fair, many of the agents that are under development today is to try to reduce our dependence on older line chemotherapeutics and radiation. I mean, there's a very high percentage of patients still get radiotherapy today. It's, it's depending on who you talk to, 70 or 80 percent. And it would be wonderful to be able to reduce the use of that or reduce the dosage of that and some of the chemotherapies as well. And some chemotherapy is relatively benign, but it's still hard on a person. But some of the old-line chemotherapies are, are just horrible, horrible on patients. And the thought we might actually be able to eliminate the use of those and still improve outcomes is really quite important. Well, Brad, thanks so much for the conversation today. I appreciate you joining me on the program. Oh, well, thank you very much, Al. It's, uh, as always, a great pleasure to talk. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading in the U.S. under the symbol ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Hey, it's me! Cool voice guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for an interview with Ken Eford of Nobilis Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange's HLTH. Nobilis owns and manages ambulatory and acute health care facilities to deliver health care services. Their focus is improving access to care and patient outcomes by providing minimally invasive procedures that can be performed in low-cost outpatient settings. They utilize innovative direct-to-patient marketing and proprietary technologies to drive patient engagement and education. Nobilis owns and manages seven surgical facilities in Dallas, Houston, and Scottsdale, and has contractual partnerships with six other facilities in Arizona, Oregon, Michigan, Minnesota, Tennessee, and New Jersey. Ken Eford oversees business development for Nobilis. How would you describe your position at Nobilis? My legacy of operations, I was previously the COO, currently helping with M&A and looking at launching new verticals like in the ancillary space. How has business development with regard to Nobilis increased revenue during the past 12 months? In multiple ways. We've seen our growth within the company be one of organic and through acquisition and through de novo. Organically, we've grown as we've brought new facilities online as well as re- 
invigorate past relationships with physicians, as well as through acquisitions like we received in Q4 of 2014 with APHIS and, and enhancing a, a very robust marketing program, as well as de novo with the launch of our intraoperative monitoring and first assist program, all of which have made a, a significant impact to revenue as well as earnings. But what else is unique about Noblis as compared to other healthcare-related companies of this kind in the space? And we are very good operators, but where we're different from our competitors is our marketing abilities. We have a class marketing division that has allowed us to go out and directly source patients and surgeries for our facilities and our network of physicians. That's a key differentiator. Also, our ability to have innovative products within the market, whether they be a surgical technique, a physician service, or a complement of services like we've done with the ancillary services. The beauty of bringing those verticals online is it allows us to enhance the patient and provider experience while increasing our continuity of care. So we make sure that the surgeon has the anesthesia provider that they know and love, the IOM tech that they're comfortable with, the first assist that knows their movements and their, and their behaviors. So we have increased clinical outcomes as well as clinical operations or efficiencies. We have shorter cut to close times because of these enhancements. Typically, surgeons aren't schooled in marketing. This is something that they are not taught. So really, when they align themselves with Nobilis, they can, in many instances, dramatically increase their own revenue stream. Yes, sir, that's absolutely correct, and that's to our benefit. Direct-to-consumer marketing in the medical space historically, or years ago, was considered taboo. It was predominantly around the dental and plastic spaces, but as we have found that patients are playing a more active role in their medical decision-making, they are out there seeking information, and with the Internet, they have plenty of it to digest. But what that provides us is real opportunity to interject our messaging and direct them into our system. Now, when we have surgeons who try to do marketing, they try to do online and have their website, often they fail because they lack the proper infrastructure to properly execute on any of those media dollars spent. So we have a desire by our physician partners or those within our facilities, but yet they have an inability to execute properly. So that when we bring to them our marketing products, it's with open arms that's received. I know you're quite successful with your marketing strategies in attracting these types of professionals. Are professionals also reaching out to you due to your across-the-board marketing efforts? That was one of the positive side effects of us running Direct Response TV and online is we were getting out there in front of the surgeons in our market and the associated clout that came with it was not only surprising but impressive. We're now, we're no longer having to knock on doors. We still do identify key surgeons and seek them out, but we're also having surgeons contact us wanting to be a part of our marketing system. Give us an overview of your management team if you don't mind. Our management team comes from several different breeds and ideologies, if you will, and pedigrees. We have a great depth of knowledge from the legal front, the accounting and finance, the marketing and clinical operation. And what that has allowed us to do is have such great depth on our bench that we can execute and grow as we have experienced over the years and continue to grow. And as we continue to enhance our operations and grow within different verticals, we'll allow our management team to continue to be more specialized as we bring on additional talent. Ken, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, sir. I've been chatting with Ken Eford. Ken oversees business development for Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol HLTH. Find a link to the Noblest Health website on the homepage of ours, ellismartreport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. 
Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Now here's Bob Lang. When we invest, we typically look for return either in stock price gain or income from dividends. Gain is what we're here for, the root of making life better by doing better. You can take it easy and plop your money in a CD and have little risk and little reward. Or take a flyer on the bleeding edge of technology, where the risk is high and the potential reward is too. Everyone strives to find that balance, that sweet spot. Most of us diversify holdings and get to that sweet spot of personal tolerance for risk and reward, and that's great. How did we get this knowledge? How did it come to us? Someone taught you is my guess, and some of you probably were self-taught. Not to say everyone who teaches has the acumen to pass on the training needed that will make you successful. I wouldn't ask my ninth grade art teacher to suggest investments or even career moves. That's just not their specialty. But then, that's why you're here, to hear about opportunities that fit into your balance. If we designed a great opportunity from scratch, it would have some prime characteristics, a checklist of features that make it appealing for further investigation and investment, or potential investment. Something like a new huge untapped market, millions of potential customers, or maybe even more. If it was really special, it would be brand new to that huge untapped market as well, or nearly so. So the excitement and the growth has the room to be exponential. It also need to have something that's very hard to pair with huge untapped markets, and that's where the product is unknown, that and being an established and proven business model. For us to have a cool new opportunity, the business should have a history based in success. Well, let's make it a business that has a famous history rooted in not just its own success, but the success of customers over the short term and the long term, e- even a subscripted customer base, one that's coming back again and again. So let's review our fantasy wish list. Huge untapped market or nearly so. New experience for that market. Established model or proven system of operation. A history of success, despite being in this huge untapped marketplace. And subscripted elements that keep customers coming back again and again. Hmm, can we add some more? I thought I heard someone in the back say cash flow. Okay, it's on the list. Now how about we jack up the wish list one more and ask for no or little debt, if that's not too much to ask for. It should be pretty tough to find a company that can meet those perfect conditions. Would it be even crazier if the untapped market was not just millions of potential customers, but potentially one billion or more? Surely that's too much to ask. What if that new customer experience the untapped market gained was the ability to almost immediately improve many aspects of their own lives in ways they never imagined? Now, for many of you, I'm sure I just tripped on the too-good-to-be-true button, and it's flashing right now. So let's see if the company we have in mind as an opportunity actually meets this wish list. A huge untapped market in some aspects is China, with billions of people who've had a lifetime of the government controlling every aspect of their lives, with not much hope. Full employment perhaps, but under what conditions? Self-elevation has not been in their model. Not like the USA or the EU. What if your product was hope itself? Man, would that be special. If you have none or little, or it's wavering, then genuine hope would be very valuable to you. Ask any person with depression. More than that, how about our company has a school, a methodology for turning hope into real-life improvement, a path forward for potentially billions of people who are new to the concept of building wealth 
or seeing a new and better way of living in the new Chinese economy. I know many of you have figured it out. But for those still curious, we'll start with the history of success and model of operation for our wish list company. In today's exercise, I'll start with surrogates. I'll pick from the giants of the industry in America, names like Dale Carnegie, Will Rogers, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dr. Robert Schuller, and Anthony Robbins. They change lives and make money doing it, for some years after their passing. There are more, but let's take one. Anthony Robbins, American motivational speaker, personal finance instructor, life coach, and self-help author. $30 million in revenue after many years of operating in the capitalist republic of America. He's teaching, life coaching, motivational speaking, spreading optimism, personal development, and self-help. A lot of followers or subscribers. While many can benefit from Tony's teaching, only a very, very few rise to the level of equal or perhaps with the opportunity to surpass Tony's achievements. But it would be rooted in the proven models that people like Tony Robbins have set. Now let's address the last two points on that crazy too-good-to-be-true wish list we created earlier. Subscripted customers and cash flow with little or no debt. I guess we're close enough to the end of this segment to reveal our opportunity in greater detail. One of, if not the most successful of Anthony Robbins' students was Stephen Chen. His company, Success Holdings, OTC symbol SHGT, meets most, if not all, of the items on our incredible wish list. One, they dominate the China market in their industry. Two, they provide the new, fresh experience for thousands of paying customers in attendance, and now online, on TV, and on personal devices. Three, they have an established model or operations based on a history of proven success by other great self-improvement giants. Four, subscription. SHGT launched a service that will expand its inspirational Internet content from its U.S.-based Launch TV subsidiary on its own platform. It features short films and other content with inspirational themes. Initially launched in China, it's going to likely spread throughout Asia and beyond. Now, Steve Chen, the CEO, said he believed this is a highly significant event for SHGT and represented further validation of their formula for generating high-margin revenue through a series of products and or services that are aimed at enriching the lives of the consumer. In addition to being available to viewers by cable TV, affiliates, and launch TV, it's available on iPad, iPhone, Android, Roku, and smart TV portal devices worldwide. So there's the subscriptive income in place. So now to complete our wish list. Of the perfect opportunity, we just need cash flow and little or no debt. In its first nine months of operations as a public company ending March 31, 2015, SHGT had revenues of over $24 million and earnings of $3.7 million. That's just the first nine months. Now, while many will wait and get into the stock when it's trading in years to come, it's the investor with the appreciation for the potential here that will take a position now. The last estimates I've been able to gather are that debt is less than 10% of cash on hand. SHGT, on the OTCQB, is in my opinion Asia's leading provider of self-improvement products and programs. A new area for Chinese citizens to realize. Once they get on that train, it's going to be a long ride. My time is nearly up, but let's add one more thing to that impossible wish list. Wouldn't it be great if the Opportunity Company had a stated goal to buy more companies that aligned with our crazy wish list? That would be an opportunity, wouldn't it? And that's not unlike what we have in SHGT led by China's foremost motivational speaker and marketer, Steve Chen. SHGT has established an umbrella organization for acquiring rapidly growing companies in related areas. So, after going through this list and showing you these points, I hope you realize now is the time to examine how SGT fits into your balanced investment strategy. Seeing how SHGT lines up with this crazy wish list we created, 
Isn't it time to examine how SHGT fits into your balanced investment strategy? Saying you'll do it later is, well, late. Why am I so excited about SHGT? The root of SHGT and the mission of Steve Chen is to help millions of Chinese in business, in their home life, in their spiritual life, and for the others they interact with, make life better by doing better. And if I remember the beginning of our talk, that's what we're here for, too. Success Holding Group International trades under the symbol SHGT. SHGT was formed based on the philosophy and business strategies of Steve Chen, Asia's number one motivational speaker. I'm Ellis Martin, of course, and I'm sitting with my good friend, who I haven't seen in a, a long time, actually, comedian, writer, actor... Producer Susan McIntosh, welcome to the program. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. What have you been doing the last 20 years? 20? 45 minutes in traffic. Uh, (laughs) I've moved to this wonderful city of Los Angeles from New York. New York is now a pit, a pit of artisan sandwich shops and and little boutiques. It is not the crazy rock and roll city I moved to, so hence I have been spit out to the west, the best coast. None of us ever want to go back to New York to live, although we might for a, a few days take it in, enjoy the scenery, visit with friends, have great food any time of the day or night. But uh, why do you think people just come to L.A. and we live and die here? Well, first off, it's so bloody comfortable. The air itself is like the, it's like the feeling of, of being in a warm bloodbath. It's tasty. It's tasty. 98 degrees, man. You don't have to do anything but just breathe in and out. You're completely comfortable at all times. You don't have to eat it so thick sometimes there around here. Many people don't, as a matter of fact. The breatharians. Right. You just have to breathe in plasma. That's all you have to do. It's the low-hanging fruit. Eventually, you get tired of the schlep and running around and the dog-eat-dog, and you simply want some low-hanging fruit. I want low-hanging fruit. It's easy that way. If we actually have to work, God forbid, then we're not going to get our uh, our 10-hour sleep. Well, is it possible, Susan, to get a lot done in four hours or five hours during a day and take the rest of the day and just do absolutely nothing related yes. to work? It's called being French, and I'm French. <laughs> I get up. I write for two hours. I take a hike, I take a nap. I'm like a 75-year-old. I've never been happier in my life. I don't have to get on a subway. I can, I can avoid smelling, wafting sewage smells. I can avoid all kinds of rats, bugs. I don't miss them. Don't miss them. Then why is the rent so high in New York City? It's outrageous there. Because you want a little filth. Listen, this is why you go to New York. You go to New York because you want to get out of your suburban nightmare and you want a little filth. Everyone should have a little filth. They should eat a little filth once or twice in a lifetime. It gives you an edge. I grew up in the greater New York area, and uh, every other weekend or so, I'd spend time in the East Village and Times Square. And if you want real filth, you've got to go back about 30, 40 years to get it there. And it was thick. It was exciting. It was recommended by my parents. They said, hey, go out and play. (laughs) Those are cool parents. (laughs) And I'd go out and play, and if I had some quarters or dollar bills on me, I'd pay my tolls every half block. Right. and it's just there's no concept of that lifestyle that exists in the country anymore. And it, 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 people much younger than me it just have no idea what it was like back then. It was it was filthy. It was gritty. It was exciting. It was fun. It was dangerous. It wasn't and watched. There was a feeling that you could. It was a world without your parents watching you. And that was Brooklyn for me uh, the last 10 years as well. Williamsburg, which is now blown up, of course, the show Girls, is filmed next door to my house there, my apartment. And that's even going back to a time a few years ago when things were a lot less discovered and a lot less precious, as it were. You can go into an art loft and have a party till 5 or 6 in the morning. You never see a cop when you're walking home. It was a world, basically, it was sort of like a Tom Sawyer world where you can just be on your raft from one crazy adventure to another, going downstream. 
<laughs> but now it's now every, there's a pressure because of the, the the rents are so high. There's a pressure not to live that lifestyle. There's a pressure to like have a day job and to be your parents at 25. I think the generation two are cer- certainly they're they're strivers far, far more than my generation was. These these kids want to make it. They want to make it by the time they're 30. Making it to us was paying the rent and maybe getting an art show somehow somewhere or a painting in something. It just wasn't the kind of... I think the, the pressure of success has ruined New York. It is very sanitary, as in uh, Vegas or any of the shopping malls around uh, Los Angeles, for instance. Uh, Times Square is just full of buy this, buy that. Buy this and buy that. Buy this and buy that, and there's absolutely no culture in that. There's only a corporate culture. Yep. We can certainly go down that road in this conversation. Ah, uh, who needs it? But who needs it? I mean, many people do, and, and really it's it's a road to uh, personal depression if you take the yeah. art creativity out of life and you're force-fed what you should enjoy and what you should buy every weekend. Well, it's the difference between creating and consuming. And at, I, I, miss, I miss a time and place in the city, and it's still there. There's still artists that are making and not just consuming, but it is the emphasis between personal expression and personally creating one's experience versus consuming one's experience, I think that's the divide. Well, how do you think the Internet has turned all this around, if it has at all? Has it made it better, has it made it worse, or is it just a combination of both? I think it made it, it made it worse. I think it's very important for people to be bored. I think that bore, with boredom comes the creative spark. You need to not be continuously stimulated in order to create the next experience to stimulate yourself. When you have the ability to look down at your phone, just for instance, and being in a coffee shop, I'm looking around and everyone's like looking at their phones. It was that pregnant pause, that moment when you could flirt, that moment when you could strike up a conversation, that moment when something unexpected could happen. And now those moments are gone. They just they don't exist anymore. People are now looking downward and focusing their attention on something to satisfy them. Whereas before, people were forced to find satisfaction in the world. So life has become a pornographic metaphor. Yes, we're overstimulated and undernurtured. How about that? The solution to this is what? Some sort of electromagnetic pulse? Yes, let's hope. Let's hope a comet strikes the earth, does no damage other than knocks out everybody's cell phones. I mean, I remember New York in the moment there was a there was a blackout and I think that was 2010, maybe in 2009, and there was no power in the city for 3 days. It was the most fun I'd had in years because suddenly people were forced. I mean, the, the most popular guy in the neighborhood was a guy with a transistor radio. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like the shortwave radio guy. That was the go-to. And it was just the experience of everyone suddenly had the veil down. It was extraordinary. And may I say, incredibly sexy. It was tangibly fun in a way that I think technology in some way with the illusion of, of uh, bringing us together is actually is an illusion. It's, it's alienating us. I just turned off the, uh, if you're wondering why I looked at my cell phone, I just turned off the buzzer so uh, we wouldn't be interrupted by there it during, this, there you go. There you go. during this interview. I, oh, was, I, was, I wasn't checking my tweets or anything like that. <laughs> I'm getting your status on air. On air with Susan McIntosh. Talking. Hey. So uh, what else is on your mind? Well, what isn't on my mind? I am excited about the fact that I can see in your wonderful penthouse apartment, I look over at the ocean, I see this wonderful thin layer of gravy. I see when you're in the gravy, you don't know you're in the gravy. The gravy is, for those of you that are not in Los Angeles, that's the brown part of the air that that just skims the surface of this wonderful city. And you don't really notice it when you're in it. It's sort of like love. You don't necessarily notice it when you're in it, but you notice it when it's gone. (laughs) 
What I notice is that I have to take an extra dose of allergy pill this morning due to yeah. that uh, brown goop coming into my to my nostrils. And we're going to talk weather, I guess. We're going to talk Los Angeles weather because that's what you do here. You talk weather and traffic in L.A. And if, if you're new to this town, you're finding your way around. And if you're visiting, you're seeing it. But if you've lived here forever, it's just part of our lingo. It's part of our conversation. Gonna, I'm going to add my part to that conversation by saying that, you know, I don't think we're going to see the June gloom this year from uh, January all the way through July. I don't think it's going to happen. And this gravy you refer to and hot weather is just going to prevail. And may I say, there's also a layer of pollen. <laughs> it's like a light dusting, a fairy dusting of pollen everywhere you go. It's like it's, it's like a Dr. Seuss uh, book or something. You're like, Horton hears a sneeze everywhere you go, man. It's unbelievable. I have so many Claritins. I have like one under my tongue, one behind my ear. I, might, I, got, I need a Claritin pouch, I, I swear to God. It's a little extreme. I was wondering why you're not sneezing because I actually. I'm so high. Is why I'm so I'm jacked up on methamphetamine slash Benadryl. You know I can't even feel my feet. You know what? Uh, we should have a camera on you right now. We we don't have a camera in the studios here in the in, in the penthouse, but you look jacked up. I'm, the I'm, way I'm, your I'm, posture I'm is shaking. jacked up, your hair is jacked up. <laughs> no offense. I mean, it looks great. No, but you're completely no, you're completely physically jacked up right now, and, and the Claritin's supposed to bring you down. No, I'm shaking like a chihuahua. (laughs) My hair looks like Gene Wilder on a good day. I'm I'm not hungry, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Gene Wilder on a good day is what my hair looks like. Susan, we've discussed the air in Los Angeles. We've talked about, actually, New York. And what I remember about New York when I was a kid is, as much as I enjoyed going, playing around in the city, I came home with a layer of soot as a mustache every day. Wow. And that's how bad it was back in the uh, the 50s and the 60s. So I, I guess we have some improvement as far as weather is concerned and smog and pollution, but we don't have nearly enough. I want more filth. Filth made it fun. What kind of filth do you want? Well, I like that th- when things are challenging, you know you're alive. I think that's part of my Internet experience is that I feel is kind of sad now. Is everything's a little bit homogenized. It's not as edgy and as ex- and extreme as it used to be. Like you said, the, the soot. The adventure of life being not so easy. I think when things are easy, people get complacent and things get a little dull. We like things complicated. I think that's what makes life interesting. You mentioned boredom being a good thing. Yes. And with as many things as I have around here to keep me occupied and to encourage me to have a great time in my life, I'm going through bouts of extreme boredom, which turn into anger, which as a creative type, and I am a creative type, I think is very, very good, because if I don't get something done, I'm going to be in in trouble. And what needs to get done at this point is quantum leaps. Quantum leaps, and you can only get to a quantum leap if you're absolutely fed up. That's right. And anger, is, I think, is one of the things that we, we try to, especially in, in the new age of Los Angeles, everyone's very f- afraid of anger. But I think anger is incredibly important. It is the impetus for movement and for movement forward. You have to be angry. Boredom and anger are important catalysts to change. You have to be able to manage it so it doesn't mess up your life or anybody else's life. You have to really learn how to channel boredom or anger. It should be put it into art. It, that should be the impetus. To, towards creation. I've got nothing. <laughs> You're bored and angry. Story. That's the problem. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I think I think I'm more angry than bored because again, there's always something to do. There's what are you angry at? Let's talk about what, what makes you angry. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McIntosh. Yes, let's talk about what makes you angry. I feel at this point in my life, I have not accomplished all the things I wanted to do, and I'm yep. pissed off about it. 
I get it. I wake up at night thinking those things myself. You, as busy as you are, as busy doing, as I am, doing what you love every what, day. Thank, I'm very blessed to be in that position. But there always is that. What did I do? And what what, what road did I not take? And maybe I should have stuck with this or stuck with that. It, there's always those questions. There's always those those wonders. You just don't you don't know where you're going until you're there, and then you're like, oh, is this what it was? This is where I thought I was going. Well, I wasn't really going here. I want to go over there. I think there's a maybe that just is the life process. Maybe that is just living. That's the impetus that keeps us going. That is the impetus that keeps us going and growing and evolving, and mm-hmm. it's a necessary part of our psyche. And to medicate it, which I refuse to do. 90% of the time, to take an antidepressant or some sort of depressant or even a stimulus drug uh, defeats the whole purpose of this gestalt as a creative, getting you to do new things and to achieve, which is human nature. Well, and we need to be uncomfortable. I think that's it, too, that we're not, we've been told so many times that being uncomfortable is something that needs to be either fed or medicated. We don't like to sit in the discomfort, and yet sitting in the discomfort is actually the place that you grow from. I do believe that. What would be something uncomfortable that you'd consider doing that you really don't want to, but you think potentially might be good for you? Exercise. Get moving. I haven't seen you in a while. You look like you've been exercising. I have, so thank you. You must thank be. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Chasing my tail around in circles, that's that's my main form of exercise. You know, as many gyms as there are here in Los Angeles, and there's a ton of them, uh, and a lot of people use them, a lot of people don't. What I've noticed about exercising, it's a great place to put this anger because yeah. you, you go ahead and you do something for your body, and you, you get to live longer, hopefully, and you're propelled into uh, an endorphin rush. It helps you creatively as well, yep. and I found it to be very, very useful. I, I feel like this it's a waste of, of energy, though. I This is what I want to do. This is my dream. You, you have a gym, right? And each person that's on the treadmill or on the bicycle are somehow charging this giant battery that will then that will then power the entire gym and hopefully the city block. So all those narcissists, myself included, <laughs> all those losers, uh, uh, gym goers, are out there somehow doing good with all that excess energy. Besides masturbation, they're doing something positive for the world. That's a little bit what it feels like too. Is everyone in these isolated little, little experiences? They're not contributing to the greater whole. If we had more experience to contribute to something larger than the self, maybe we're powering those giant battery cells. <laughs> and somehow there's a connection to doing not just an individual experience, but a communal experience. Is there any advice you can give to individuals listening to this podcast, to young people around the country, about doing something uncomfortable? It doesn't have to be young people. Young people of any age that are really looking to deal with their anger, deal with their boredom, deal with their lack of self-fulfillment, other than exercise, as an artist or potential artist, because there's an artist in everybody, I believe, how would you start? That's a very good question. Thank well, you. it's getting out of one's head, and ultimately it's trying to find like-minded people, which is not easy. And our culture is certainly set up to keep us isolated, even in community spaces, which we're supposed to be sitting down and talking to each other. There's very little of that. You'll have a mall, for instance, but there's not a public space without having to buy something where people can't actually sit down and talk to each other. There's, you know, you're forced to be in a continuous loop of shopping. You're not able to actually relate, which is unfortunately part of the uncomfortableness. I think that it's we're in our skin where we have these feelings which are now being channeled into purchase. 
So if you're uncomfortable, buy something to make you happy. Unfortunately, we've kind of gotten to that cycle. We have to break that first off and realize that being uncomfortable is part of being alive. And trying to soothe that uncomfortableness through external objects is a cycle that is basically the treadmill that we're on in terms of the consumption and what our culture is built around, which is continuous consumption of products, which doesn't really satisfy. So I think it's really important to do some inward work where you realize that what you are looking for to satisfy yourself is really an external dream and it's external. It's not something that necessarily can actually be satisfied within the self. It has to somehow come out and connect to something else. And this is a a great way to begin that is ultimately through friendships, trying to figure out how to go forward in this world where one does not feel so isolated. Cultivating friendships is a great space to begin. And again, the Internet, I think, has removed us from this notion of friendship. We have a thousand friends, but how many people do we really speak with? How many people do we talk with every day? Getting in the discipline of actually picking up a phone and calling somebody. I mean, that's a great place to move out of your uncomfortableness. Actual communication that doesn't involve texting, doesn't involve tweeting. It involves actual conversation, like what we're having. I feel far less uncomfortable now sitting here with you, Ellis. That's interesting. Once again, you've brought up several really, really good points. Nobody really likes to pick up the phone and call anybody anymore. It's too much trouble. We'd rather just text something off and then wind up in a 20-minute text, which would be probably a lot easier facilitated if it were to happen on the telephone. Now, we've stated that the Internet and devices can be a, a setback, but on the other hand, if you want to engage with other people, if you want to have conversations, if you want to meet new people, for instance, I've found something to be useful part of the time, not all the time, but I've met a group of musicians here in Los Angeles that I play with on a regular basis, as a matter of fact, in two bands because of something called meetup.com, where you can literally, whatever your passion is or you think it is or you want it to be, you can go there. And I'm not selling meetup. I, it sounds like I'm selling meetup. I guess I am selling it or something like it. You can really select your passion and filter through like-minded people and get together and engage with them putting away the devices i found great joy in that that's a great spot to begin absolutely it's it's finding like-minded people is extremely important and the the problem is is that when once people leave college too they find themselves not having ability to connect to large groups of people so meetup is is sort of like taking a college class and another experience and that's a wonderful place to begin absolutely extremely important i also think Events like Burning Man, events like I just went to Bequinox, which was an event in Joshua Tree. I think these wonderful, the Burning Man community especially, these are really great places that bring people together that are like-minded people. And it's I found a great deal of joy in my life through these experiences. It forces people out of the comfort zone, quite literally. It puts you into a survival situation where you're completely uncomfortable. And that's part of it. They put you in the middle of a desert. There's a reason why. is to put you into a place that is no longer safe. And you can't feel safe. You can't feel comfortable. You have to feel uncomfortable in order to to test yourself. And that's when the true beginning of who are you. For instance, the last weekend I spent at Equinox, you know, in our society we tend to, we have our jobs, and they don't really define us generally. Who you really are and who your character is isn't necessarily being exemplified by your desk job or your day job or even your relationships. In these environments where you see people camping and you see people forced into having to survive in a group situation, you start to see what their true personalities are. You see people, all they want to do is gather firewood. All they want to do is talk. All they want to do is help build stuff. All they want to do is cook. All they want to do is 
go dance. All they want to do is run away from responsibility and that they have to face the fact that they have no tent. You see all these kinds of behaviors that eventually, you hope, will start to contribute to someone's larger understanding of the self and start to really figure out what path they, sh- they need to be on. Are they helpers? Are they provocateurs? Are they comics? Are they clowns? What is your true inner self? If you had the ability not to have a job and suddenly was part of a tribe, for instance, what function would you serve? This is fascinating. We were talking about the corporate culture and the, and the corporate culture being a culture that encourages everyone to buy stuff all the time. During the course of my life, I have struggled with being personally disenfranchised from that corporate culture. And if you're not careful, you want up being penniless and homeless and only because you're not buying it it's it's quite a fascinating place to be and and hopefully like you mentioned you can find other like-minded people you can be creative with one another but then you've still got to earn a living and it's a really really tough thing to live as you and i do necessarily for people that that haven't done it and that's to be uncomfortable and live on our wits alone or in my case half of them and and to provide a living to live in a city like new york or los angeles or chicago or san francisco where it's not cheap and even burning man costs you several hundred dollars to get into if you can afford that it's a thousand dollar ride to be uncomfortable to be uncomfortable and that's the great escape when i was a kid you know none of that cost anything you could just be that and it doesn't cost anything now but if you want to have group fun on that scale it's going to cost you and it's almost corporate in nature absolutely which sort of defies the whole experience of personal independence absolutely and it's, it's ironic that you have to pay money to become free i'd say it is an ironic reality that we're in Yeah, ultimately, I think that we're at a space where people have to figure out ways to alternatively experience life without the corporate structure. Maybe it is alternative small farming communities, but then again, who wants to farm the rutabagas? I mean, that requires a lot of, a lot of patience and skill and work and are we able to do that anymore i don't know if the, if the comet came today and struck the planet how many of us and took out maybe all the power grids how many of us could actually figure out how to grow some food i don't know i think we don't i think i would certainly starve i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know you know we're really at a place of dependency and that itself is kind of a scary thought and that's why the burning man stuff becomes so fun because it is about survival it's about self-sufficiency two things we have no idea about and that again of course after going to Walmart and buying all the things you then think you're self-sufficient you didn't make that tent you bought it (laughs) it kind of defeats the purpose and that's what bothers me about all the flyover states and I'm a product of some of that I lived in Missouri for a while for about a year actually and part of my thrill was going to Walmart and buying new socks or whatever I could buy and when I'm in New Mexico um, if I get a little bored I might go over to the all night uh, huge super center and just walk around and look at some new flannel shirts and things of that nature and really when I get out of there I'm looking at all these strip malls and all these miniature high end malls all over the country that have P.F. Chang's in them and Romano's noodles or it's just a even in Los Angeles, wherever you look, it's it's just buy my shit. It's buy my shit, whatever it is, and it's real, you're taking a beautiful landscape. I don't want there to be a massive earthquake in California. It will happen someday. It will happen, I don't know, next year or in 100 years. But if we have to rebuild ever, I would appreciate it if we do it with some thought and love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some creativity. I, it, it's the thing that I don't have a problem against those stores. The problem I have is that there's the same store. Everywhere I go, it's the same store. 
I would like to see the, the individuality of that town reflected more. Our moms and uncles and aunts aren't going to be owning the candy store down the street that's anymore. Right. That just doesn't happen, and that's sad. It is sad because, it's a, it's again, it's a connection to the, the experience of actually where you live. It grounds you. You know your town because you know that candy store. You know that town because you know the people behind the counter. And they've always been there. And they remember you when you were a kid. They remember your family. It connects you to a time and place. I think that's what the Internet's doing. We all feel a little anonymous now. We're not really seen. I think that that's the uncomfortableness, too, is that, do you remember my history? It's not on Facebook. Who was there? Who remembers me? That's the odd part about moving out of New York, because I spent you know, so many years... The last 10 years, really, in Williamsburg, we created a scene, my friends and I. We created something amazing that's now being uh, parodied on HBO with The Girls Show. And so many of my friends are you know, doing very well with their bands and touring the world. But we all knew each other, and we were there for each other's experience. We're, the feeling is that it's just we're just anonymous anymore. We're just a click of like. We're a like or a join or a this or a that. Our experience of who we really are as our individual selves feels dissipated. Let's talk about your story as far as how you got into the world of humor and comedy. And the reason why I'm asking you this is not just for a biographic, but it's assisting others that are listening to this program that may be thinking about it. How do you begin? How do you become involved in it? How do you do it? Well, I think it goes to the uncomfortableness when you feel like there is a point where you want to talk back because no one's really saying what you want to say. I think it comes from anger. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the kid that would scream at the television and be like, oh, no, what about that? What about that? And thank God I had parents that encouraged that. I think that's the worst thing. If, if a child is, is loud and obnoxious and difficult, they should be encouraged to be follow your bliss. So comedians don't come from a comfortable place. No. They don't, and they come. They're generally loud and difficult. <laughs> I can remember my entire. I mean, all my report cards was like talks too much in class, too loud, too many questions. The other one has no patience, has no self control. No, I don't. Nor should I, because if you do, it's boring. No self control. That's absolutely. I have absolutely none. Thank God. Self control is not that interesting. So at some point, really, it's like walking a tightrope perhaps or surfing you've got to channel this anger you've got to flip it over a molecule into mm -hmm. the fun zone exactly or, or just the desire to it's the chaos principle it's the desire to bounce the ball off the wall really loudly and, and, and disrupt and I think that it's the prankster element that we have to encourage people to hold on to which you know we, the new age community you call it the inner child it's really that creature within us that we all have that unfortunately has been this is why school is so difficult though I've been a teacher in my life is it tries to basically rob you of it. It wants you to settle down, keep your head down, and not be disruptive. But we need disruptors in our lives. And somehow, my dad was a very funny guy, and he was a very loud guy. He's an Australian and a very uh, powerful character. And he admired that in me. He thought it was fun and, and really cool. And I thank God for that, because you know I think that we tend to be very polite in our society. We want to be smaller than we actually are. And I come from loud, wild, crazy people that were sheep herders, that were you know, wrestling sheep and shearing sheep in the middle of the outback. People that could not, were not quiet and would not have survived such a harsh environment if they were. You know, holding on to the things that make us individual as wild characters, I think, is extremely important. Again, that's fascinating that you'd mention that because I, I've traveled, as I'm sure you have and many of our listeners have, all over the world. And the Australians make Americans actually look, they make us seem very, very quiet. 
nonchalant, absolutely contained. And and the Australians that I've met over, I realize this is a, a general statement, but they've been the most rambunctious. They've been the most entertaining. They've been the most rowdy. And Drunk. certain times, I was going to say that at nine o'clock in the morning, you usually find one that that, that has had more than one or two drinks. <laughs> and and is it because of the isolation? Is it because of the environment? Is it because of the harsh conditions? And and I found this to be true. Speaking of sheep, from people from Devon or Cardiff yes. in England, you know, where there are sheep, there's plenty of sheep over there, uh, or, or Scotland for that matter. Funny people are a product of their harsh environment. Yes, I think so. There's a survivor's humor there too. I think that's why Jews are funny because you had to survive so much and keep laughing and keep going on. And the Australians are the same. They were dropped there as convicts in a harsh environment and they had to survive and how do we survive we survive because we can figure out how to laugh about it and keep going misery doesn't really create enthusiasm <laughs> for, for getting to firewood and continuing your journey you have to you have to be able to laugh and be able to keep going I think that's extremely important to be able to figure out how to survive and how to thrive which is at the end of the day is storytelling we tell stories about our experience and we keep going. And, and I think that's a, a great place to end this particular segment and a great place to uh, perhaps begin the future segment of our life. Susan McIntosh, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, my friend. You're the smartest guy in town. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 